Welcome to the Creative Condition Podcast, the show where I, Ben Talon, illustrator and writer, invite people from the creative industry and far beyond to share their story of creativity, both the nature and the nurture, the chaos and the calm. Creativity is a fundamental pillar of human happiness, something I'm increasingly fascinated by. It is so often misunderstood. So little by little, I hope to build an archive of valuable stories, experiences and tips to help you maximise yours. Today I'm going to be talking with my good self. I don't do too many of these episodes where I speak without a guest, but every now and again it's just nice to do so. It's nice to get in the studio, share some thoughts, and I tend to only do this when I've got something to share that I think might be of value. So I hope that's going to be the case today as I walk you through the production of my very first fiction zine, The Elf in the Delph. We'll get into that shortly um very quickly at the top of the show i just wanted to say for those of you who saw the promo about the episode coming up with laura hope that that's very much still happening laura's a fantastic illustrator who's worked in a very broad range of interesting creative jobs before she arrived at her work as an illustrator but during covid she decided to make quite a shift and accept a job working in an art gallery because she needed to find the headspace to remember why she was doing this and to find her feet again and I think we've all been there some of us are very much there and I just thought that episode and Laura's experiences I saw her sharing this stuff on social media and thought that I think I should have this conversation so I got in touch and, and as luck would have it we recently did a very similar chat on her show which she sometimes does on Instagram live where I shared my own story which was a pleasure so I knew she'd be up for this because I knew she was very passionate about creativity um, and I wanted to just chat the goings on and, and the, you know the reasons why and talk about change and why it's absolutely crucial sometimes for us creatives to consider where we are and be honest with ourselves if um, what we're doing is not really warm in the heart so we're, we're, that's going to be coming up in the next episode but the reason I wanted to get this one out is um, it's actually the release day for my very first fiction zine so we're going to talk about that project I wanted to um, take you on a bit of a journey um, and a bit more of my backstory some stuff that I've not really shared before um, as to why this is relevant and, and the kind of title I wanted to give the episode was starting over or um, starting over again because that's very much where I've been at in terms of my career as a writer so I'm sure a lot of you have noticed that a lot of my content recently has been around my words as opposed to my pictures I've been an illustrator for 13 years now working with clients such as the New York Times, Guardian, Adidas, Manchester United the, you know there's a lot of clients there which would make you think you know he's done, he's there it's never the case and you know in my own journey changes have happened along the way which were very much unplanned as is the nature of creativity as they always happen so i just wanted to let you in on that and and share that particular story because i think there are maybe some tips in there that some of you guys might benefit from and if not maybe just enjoy so that's what this episode is i'm also going to do your little reading from the zine as a little preview for you lovely listeners of the creative condition podcast um, before we crack on, I just want to say a quick thank you for the supporters of the show, the wonderful founding sponsor, Illustration X. You can find that great agency over at illustrationx.com and they represent a whole wide range of illustrators, animators and everything else in between. Um, they do a lot of great work in the creative industry, working with the world's biggest clients and all over the show. They've got offices right across the globe. Um, there's not an industry insight as such for today's episode because this is a bit of an on-the-fly thing so I hope that the whole conversation I'm going to have with you will provide some tips um, on behalf of Illustration X today 
also want to say a quick thank you to long-term supporter of the show, the Association of Illustrators over at theaoi.com. Great bunch of people. Um, well worth the membership if you're an illustrator who needs business advice and tips from workshops and events and all that kind of stuff. And they share a lot of great articles on the website. So they're doing a lot of important work for the illustration industry, so go and check them out to theaoi.com. Um, so what's this all about? So I started writing um, oh, a while ago. I mean, the whole point of this is right, that I've been writing my entire life in some way, shape or form, and I never consciously recognised it for what it was, something that I could do or weave into my career, be that my illustration career or as a whole entity in its own right. Um, and the whole theme of this this thing that I wanted to do is starting again, working it out. So it comes off the back of a chat I had with Laura Hope, which I hope you're going to check in for in the next episode of this podcast. Um, and I today have released my very first zine. For anyone who knows what a zine is, which I hope a lot of you artists and designers do know what a zine is. It's very much a kind of DIY, you know, small run, small, independent, independently produced book, I guess, or magazine, however you want to look at it. But it's it tends to be a labour of love. It's, you know, if we're talking fanzines, we're looking back at classic eras like punk and things that were done in bedrooms or on photocopiers, and it's just a labour of love for the person doing it. And I would say that this zine that I'm about to release the Elf and the Delf is very much that. So the backstory of this is, um, 2011, after about two and a half years of freelancing, I started writing what would become my debut book, and it very much wasn't the plan at all. Champagne and Wax Crayons was very much born of freelancing frustrations. I found myself two and a half years into a career that had gone very well thus far. I certainly had a bumpy ride you know, two years after uni, I was working in any job that was thrown my way to pay the bills while I tried to establish a style. Then I had a good couple of really good years. I got off the ground freelancing. I was able to go full time inside a few months and I was able to get a few clients that I liked and things got moving, you know, and you, you think that's it. I'm doing it. I'm full time and an illustrator. And then bam, you hit a six week quiet spell, which is what happened. And I should say now that, you know, that's not unusual. So brace yourself for it if you're new to the industry. These things come and go. I know people who've been doing this for decades, much longer than I have, and they've hit pretty barren spells themselves. But what happened to me was I got very um, wound up. I was a little miffed, you know, that this had happened and how could this be happening? I've got these clients and come and give me some work, damn it. <laughs> That's exactly how I felt. Um, and what I started to do when I should have been promoting to get work in, which is what I would advise anyone to do who's in this position, is I actually started ranting on a Tumblr blog. And the the venomous tirades that fell out of my face connected with a number of people who could either relate to what I was saying or found it funny or liked the honesty. Um, but it was that. It was Angry Man on a keyboard, pissed off, no one really reading it apart from a smattering of people who followed my Twitter account in its infancy. Um, and I did it. I didn't do it because I thought I could write. I certainly didn't. I got a B in English GCSE, which was my best result because I just didn't feel energized about much else apart from sport and art. Um, and that was it really. I've been a keen reader ever since, but what I didn't realize, we'll go into this a little bit more soon, is that 
I'd always been fascinated with storytelling. And subconsciously, I think when you imbibe a lot of narrative, you do soak up the, you know, the web of it, the patterns, the, the hierarchy, the, the, the ebb and flow of a story. And, and I didn't realise that this was valuable. But when I started doing this stuff, I was kindly approached by a few people. I particularly remember a lady called Kate Madigan, who's a, an illustrator herself, getting in touch. And she told me she was from an editorial background and that, that my stuff was all right, that I could write. And, and that was a, you know, at a time when I was often sat there in a pair of shorts on my underpants for 12 hours a day. It was wonderful. That was a massive boost and, and it stayed with me ever since really because I didn't know that. I didn't have anyone to tell me that. And, you know, it turns out that maybe I did because what happened was I, I, I gradually got more objective about the story I was trying to tell, which was essentially a brutally honest, tongue-in-cheek, but true story of what happens when someone tries to turn creativity into a career. And... I did it in a way that only I can because I didn't have any training in, in English beyond GCSE. So I just went with what I knew. I wrote how I wrote, the way that it came out of my brain. And I put it down on the page with passion, much like the way that I create my images. Um, and I built up a decent number of words. And over time, I started to wonder what happened if I comped this stuff together as a manuscript and took it to market. And I never got that far because luckily for me, I, I met my now wife. Laura Tallon, um, and she was working for a small boutique publisher in London called Lid, and it turned out the editor at that company and Laura's boss had also been a previous client of mine at Haymarket, and he used to commission me for illustrations, and he loved the sound of this book, so we asked to have a look at it. Long story short, we, we danced a little bit. I, I initially turned down a book deal because I didn't feel like I was credible as a writer, and then eventually we kind of had more conversations, and I felt more confident about what I was doing because of the responses I got through you guys on social media, so thank you for anyone who ever did that. And we got a book deal off the ground, and it came out. And I'm not going to beat about the bush, but the, the, the book was cool. It was very, very moderate sales, but it got industry-wide um, compliments, which was wonderful and joyous for me. And it made me believe in my writing, at least in the non-fiction realm. On a mental health level, it was essential, and that's why, I, you know, looking back, it's exactly why I was writing, for catharsis and therapy, and to vent, because it felt right, and it felt crucial for me to do that at that time. Luckily for me, things turned around after about six weeks, and I started to get a drip feed of work again. Um, and I got my act together, and it was cool, and I've been fine. I've been full-time for 13 years now as an illustrator. Um, and that was the thing. I realised as time wore on that actually all this stuff I'd been consuming my whole life from comic books to comedy to wrestling to sport to books to films to first-hand anecdotes that you hear on a bus, in a pub, in a cafe, uh, in the street. <laughs> I loved all of it and I really had um, and have an obsession with the banal and the understated and the everyday and the stuff that people overlook, the stuff that gives characters to the people on the streets and the world around us and our cultures in this world. Um, and I wanted to start painting pictures of that with words. And as much as I love my illustration and I continue to be um, a very grateful, very passionate full-time illustrator, what I understood was that the two different mediums not only gave me different outlets and different ways to express myself, but they also had this beautiful overlap in the middle. And I hope that this project I'm going to tell you about in a minute is something that is born of that middle ground. Um, <laughs> you know, this is the thing. So we're seven years out after Champagne and Wax Crayons. The book got translated into Japanese and I managed to do this incredible book tour in Tokyo and Osaka and um, Kyoto and learn things about freelancing over there. But for the longest time, I didn't dare try fiction. Now, 
The lid were great to publish here, but they certainly also had drawbacks. And it, it wasn't necessarily the lid that had drawbacks, I should be clear about. It was the publishing industry, the traditional publishing model, really, that I found didn't entirely do it for me. Because I'm a person who likes to market and work hard and get behind my stuff and run the whole machine. And I had the drive and the energy to do that. And I came to the realisation that with a publisher, you still have to be responsible for a lot of the marketing, a lot of everything that goes around the book, aside from producing it. And I thought, well, if I'm doing a lot of that stuff anyway, and I'm doing it and working harder here, can I not pull this model together? And when I say model, I'm talking about editors, marketing, the designer, the, the printers, the the wholesalers, the you know, all the things that come with putting a book out into the world. And the answer was yes, I could do it, and I could do it reasonably affordably. So I eventually somehow grew the balls to start writing fiction. I wrote very short, snappy passages, flash fiction, short stories, all rough around the edges, but about things that I cared about, things that I um, was interested in. So, and I actually wrote an entire manuscript for an unreleased novel, 80,000 words, um, it was about Leeds United head coach Marcelo Bielsa called Marcelo, me, Marcelo and I. And it was about a kid who's having a real tough time. He gets caught up in drug dealing in county lines and, you know, bullied at school. And his escape is his passion and his love of Leeds United, which was very much written from my own experience as a kid. Not the drug dealing side. I didn't, I was fortunate enough not to have that in my upbringing. But the Leeds stuff was very much absolute nerd stuff. And he begins to hallucinate and see Marcelo Bielsa, but I digress. Um... The point was I started to write and create a lot of content. Um, and it's really interesting because I, I banked as many stories as I could before parenthood because I knew that I was going to be much less time rich. Um, I didn't stop to think about an audience for this stuff, what anybody would think, whether there was a market out there for it. It was the big draw for me was the puree because I was making my money from illustration and I was very fortunate to do so. Um, but it was the absolute puree that I could create these stories with. You know, I didn't have to appease a manager or an editor. It was very much, I'm going to write this stuff. I don't know if it's ever going to get out there. I don't know. But it's doing something for me, much like everything I do. It's a, it's a labour of love. So I wrote a number of stories at the beginning. And a number of them are going to be coming out in a, a short story collection that I'm publishing next spring called Stories for the Apocalypse. Notes on the New Normal. And they're, they're quite dark they're very observational, topical and thematic of the you know today's times. But they're also black comedy and um, you know there's a lot of s cynicism and warm cynicism if that's a thing. There's a lot of um, you know just making notes of the world around us and what and what this world has become or what it was. And I remember at the time uh, my editor described these stories as Black Mirror meets Roald Dahl, which is I mean truly the highest of compliments if you're anything like me. But what I needed was a trigger to get something out there to put this work out and the pandemic was that trigger but here I was again I, because I wanted to go indie with this stuff I was writing and try that market because as I mentioned I wasn't entirely happy with the, the traditional model um, I had to go around the houses I had to learn what it meant to do that what it would be required of me you know what, what level of work and you know, otherwise I ran the risk of this being David Brent's pop single in a garage being sold to mum, auntie and a couple of sympathetic mates, you know. Um, I did talk about all this stuff in depth about the kind of publishing and uh, model and the independent publishing model. Uh, if you want to go back and listen to that, it's episode 149 of The Creative Condition. But what, like I said, I knew I could affordably assemble a team. So what I needed was a trigger. And, and like I say, it was, it was the pandemic. 
So I was a new twin parent, and you know, like everyone else, shit, what's going on? There's a, there's what is a pandemic? God, that's bad. And it's like, hmm, suddenly we're indoors, and I've got two screaming babies, and I have to have something for me for my mental health. So I began to write what became Isolation Watch: Falling Apart in the Pandemic. Um, a little self plug, but you can get a free copy of that by signing up to my author mailing list. So if you visit bentallenwriter.com and stick your name and your email in the um, sign up form on the homepage, you'll get a free ebook copy of that so you can check out what I'm talking about. But it was very much an eye on suburbia um, of what, what people were doing and how they were responding to these new social restrictions. Um, so that's what happens. And off I went. There was my first book. And it was like, I serialised it on social media throughout lockdown and the response, much like with Champagne, was very positive and excited and it just gave me the lift that I needed to release that ebook. Um, and it was really critical for that wildly erratic confidence because I'm sure you all get it, it doesn't matter how long you've been doing a thing. In the case of writing since 2015, in the case of writing fiction since 2018, um, illustrating since 2008 but my confidence is still all over the show on any given day you know it's up it's down it's sideways it's never stands still so all of that stuff was a, a big boost getting a new book out there and while I was doing that I was writing The Medium Man which was a graphic novel and that, again it was just it was the it was about the medium man um just let me say also if you can hear cars going past it's because I'm recording in the car studio today that's what you have to do when you're a parent podcaster sometimes, so I apologise for any of those noise intrusions. But anyone who's listened to this show for a while will know that's the deal on the creative condition. I'm afraid I am not the BBC. Um, but The Medium Man was a series of one-page graphic novels, very little dialogue. What dialogue I did write had to count, and it was about the, you know, the staying in tonight, he's not going to harm anyone, it's, you know, it's okay if it's okay with you. If it's not too much trouble it's that kind of every man thing and i just love that and i wanted to explore that and i got very fortunately i got shortlisted shortlisted for the uh, world illustration awards i forget which year a few years back now but that again big lift so i started sharing it far and wide and i the guardian got in touch now i'd worked for the guardian for a number of years and um tash reith banks who used to work on the sports desk and used to commission me for projects there got in touch and said she'd seen the medium man um, they were launching a series for the Guardian Cities called Guardians Illustrated Cities and it was basically handing the, the creative control over to an illustrator, an artist, a creative person to go and document a place that means something to them, be that the city they lived in, Manchester at the time for me. Um, so I went out and I did Manchester and I didn't know what I was going to write about and uh, you know I got commissioned to write and illustrate a short graphic novel for the paper and I ended up doing it on Manchester's um, very troubling homeless community and it was wonderful because it was another feather in my writing cap um and then momentum happens like i said isolation watch you know gave me that boost and during parenthood what i would do um knowing that like i said time was short i restructured my list of tasks that i could be doing at any time to make sure there was a kind of short time list of tasks a medium time list of tasks and something I could luxuriate in, you know, a full project. So on the little list of tasks, this was things like writing a paragraph of short fiction or a one-liner on the Notes app in my phone on the toilet. That's what was going on during New Parenthood. But lo and behold, because of the pressure and the time constraints, this stuff was very, like, immediate and raw and instinctive. And there was a beautiful marriage with the way that I drew. 
and I started to recognize that actually across all these art forms, be it this rough around the edges podcast that I'm talking to you on right now, be it the graphic novel, there was a, a thread going right through it. And I would implore any one of you to look for that thread, you know, what part of your personality and your character and the way you were made up as a human being characterizes the work that you like to put out there and and you can guarantee there'll be sidesteps you can take away from whatever it is you do into a different field and you will find the marriage between those mediums and maybe opportunities and ideas you never thought of will spring up in front of you and give you different ideas more stability and that's what's happened with me over time and that's how the book your mom and other stories in the back streets of britain came about and around this time people were like so what's going on then are you a writer are you an illustrator and i was you know, I never knew what to answer. I was like, well, I'm both. I'm a weird hybrid because I've stumbled upon this thing I've been doing all my life, telling stories and listening and loving stories. And I'm an illustrator because that's what I do for a living and that's also my passion. And and, and it was just that I couldn't tell the stories that I was telling in Your Mum and Isolation much through visual medium. That had to do its own thing, much like the comic for the graphic novel. Um, So in that, in the course of producing that book, I did the full, you know, everything isbn professional editor um print you know proper printer who do penguins books graphic designer to lay the thing out i'm an illustrator myself so i was able to illustrate the book um so it was a properly produced book as well as you know as professionally done as anything you'll find on waterstone shelves um and it kind of went against the stereotype of self-publishing which is often that people can't get their work out there and it's not very good so they'll just chuck it on amazon and up for the best it was the antithesis of that and i wouldn't have done it if it wasn't um and what it enabled me to do was move on my feet the indie model gave me that immediacy i was able to you know i, I became friends with sean Ryder and joanne Ryder, his wife because our dogs were best mates and through that relationship they offered to help in any way they could so i was lucky enough to get my book trailer with with guest dialogue from Sean Ryder, can you believe that? Um, and he gave me a quote for the book too. So I was able to produce this thing at great speed. I didn't have to get approval. I didn't have to, you know, go and sign it off with anyone. And I could be as raw as I wanted. So I got that out there and I recorded it as an audio book. Uh, as many of you, you guys know now, the, the guy who does the music for the show is Dirty Freud. He's a, a very close friend of mine who I lived with for a number of years. And his uh, career skyrocketed. He played Glastonbury the other year. He's a wonderful electronic musician and producer and he was able to get me some studio time in return for designing the the, the front covers of his music so you know it, it, there's a lot of ducking and diving and wheeling and dealing going on in this indie world but i loved it and i buzzed off it and it really chimed with my personality and that's what brings me now to elf in the delf so that's what i wanted to talk to you about so i've arrived at a point when even though your mum was illustrated what I found was that whole process that I just described, everything from making the animated trailer to getting the book edited to contacting and waiting for the printers to, to find the slot, it all takes time. So you end up, you know, this is why I guess a band goes from one album to the next and has a big two-year gap in between because there's so much to consider, even, even on an indie level. I mean, in the traditional world, you might be looking at years before a book comes out. It's pretty crazy. But I wanted to tap into the speed of my artwork and it's so kind of, because it's so you know, off the cuff and rugged, it comes with the great gift of being able to turn it around reasonably quick because it's very much a craft that I've learned to, to create quickly without, you know, compromise to quality. And I thought of zines. I thought, I love those old fanzine punchy things and isn't, you know, I've, I've got an eye for graphic design, but I'm not a graphic designer. However, if I go down the illustrated type route and kind of rip this stuff up and paste it all back together and create this living breathing handmade thing 
I can do all that in-house myself quite quickly and I can give life to these stories that otherwise I might have to wait for someone to publish in a literary journal or a, you know, on a blog and often the fees for these things are like 15, 20 quid um, and I didn't want to do that. It's like, yeah, don't get me wrong, like every other writer on the planet, I send stuff to the, the New Yorker. But I think somebody recently calculated the odds as being like 0.045% of getting published in the New Yorker. You know, so I send it to the, the magazines that can pay well. But the chances of me getting there as a new writer are very slim. And I thought, well, what am I waiting for? Here's this lovely um, balance of illustration and writing that I can act upon right now. And I can make the market for this stuff. And that's what you're seeing right now. So The Elf and the Delph is out today. It's a short story. It's a very darkly comedic observation, or like a lot of my writing. It's looking at traditional thought. It's looking at tradition and the damage that our traditions of humans can have on people and the planet. And it's done in a very kind of... It's done in a, it's done in a village. Okay, let me read you the blurb. That'll say it better than I can. So I've got a copy of the zine here. Um, the idea is there's only going to be 100 copies of this, and then when it's gone, it's gone. That's the thinking. I'm going to release these quite regularly, individual stories. This one's 24 pages, and it's fully illustrated. Every page has got some form of illustration on, and um, less is more. I wanted to make it, you know, for the people who like my writing, I wanted to own a piece of something that's going to be very, very limited. Um, so here's the blurb. When the body of a beloved toy elf washes up in the canal water of the local Delph, shockwaves ripple through a close-knit rural community. A time for rejoicing over gingerbread lattes and fierce consumerist competition is turned on its head as the village of Whaley descends into finger-pointing and domestic disarray. Could it be that a rogue parent carried out such a barbaric act so close to Christmas, or an elven suicide? Either way, hysteria and paranoia has gripped an already strained community and local police constable Owen Taylor finds himself firmly in the focus of hundreds of rueful eyes as Bane families demand justice for such an inexplicable symbolic slaughter. The latest offering from Van Talen's brilliantly warped mind, that was a comment said by Katie Cowan from Creative Boom, not my own arrogance, takes us on a guided tour through middle-class suburbia's dark places, giving naughty or nice a whole new meaning. Uh, so that's the story. I'm not going to give too much away, but it's a bit of a bleak murder mystery that I guess only I could write because I've got this weird brink of exhaustion. <laughs> Parenthood addled brain. And that's what's going on. So like I say, it's fully illustrated. I was inspired by the likes of Tom Gold, who started out creating his own limited run zines. He did a talk for us at UCLan on like Guardians of the Kingdom and some of his early, uh, very lovely independent short run stuff. And there's just something special about that this whole thing may crash and burn around me i may never be you know a proper writer who can use his own illustrations in his books but i'm giving it a good go and i'm really having fun so the, the zine is out there now i wanted to keep the numbers small and kind of achievable as a print run and like i said just add some value to it i don't know if any of you guys have got any prints that are kind of numbered and everything but there's just something lovely about owning a, a piece of something that's finite and, um, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm also under no delusions that I could sell thousands of copies of this because I'm very new to this writing game. Um, but I've got like a Jamie Hewlett print on my front room mantelpiece that a friend of mine bought from when Damon Albarn did the uh, Monkey Journey to the West Chinese Opera in New York and sent it over as a su surprise. And it's one of 250 you know, it's Jamie Hewlett, and I love that. And just seeing that little number and knowing I've got something that not many people have got is just collectability, I guess. So 
And I also wanted to try a band formula with my writing. So, you know, instead of just putting out the albums, so to speak, these big, expensive and time-consuming to produce books of, you know, anthologies of stories, I wanted to try the kind of single EP album formula and see how that worked. So I guess this is a single, if you want to look at it like that. So it's out there now, six quid plus postage. Every edition comes numbered by hand and signed and all that, and you even get a little drawing of the murder victim in, um, in every copy. So... That's the lovely thing about indie publishing, you know, you get to um, you get to individualise these things and engage with your audience and there's a, a very lovely bunch of people who've bought every one of my books so far and I can't tell you what that means, it's like, you know, the thing is, it's like just because I've done 13 years as an illustrator doesn't mean that I'm not sat there in cafes staring out the window some afternoons feeling miserable and, and going, what am I doing? I'm writing about a murdered toy elf. Um, but the fact is, you know, just having them, that small bunch of people who buy all your stuff, it's like, thank you so much, guys, because that, um, that just gives me that little bit of confidence I need to try and fight to the next level. So do appreciate it. So if this is your thing, if black comedy is your thing, if you like my illustration, um, it's there. Grab one, because I don't think these are going to last too long. That's the, the lovely thing. The numbers from the mailing list people have been pretty good so far. So... There's already a quarter of these gone um, before they're even on sale, which is Wednesday the 1st of December. So head over now, bentallenwriter.com forward slash shop and grab your copy if you want one. Um, I love it. I love doing this. So I'll give you a little reading um, and then I'm going to get out of here. I hope this has been of some use. I just wanted to kind of show how this whole writing thing has evolved and what it is and how, you know, how you can tap into those personal interests even after 13 years of doing one thing and kind of you know, not make the move because I'm just, it's just a whole new set of, um, what's the word? It's a whole new discipline, isn't it? It's something to, it's a whole new context for my illustration, a whole new arena to, to, to put my artwork into. But also I just love to write and tell stories. So this is a short reading from The Elf in the Delph. Kirk saw it first. It was 7.45am on December the 2nd when Miranda stopped to pick up a takeaway coffee on the way to her mother's. Her son recognised the striped tights and red tunic immediately, even from a distance. Miranda just opened WhatsApp in the queue when the five-year-old tugged at her jeans and yelled, Mummy, Mummy, look, elf! Her eyes darted across the cafe windows, certain she'd see some novelty elf decoration beaming its big-eyed mischief their way. Only fairy lights danced behind the glass, so she followed her son's line of sight. Squinting into the murky water of the local delf, she focused on a blurred chunk of red, gently swaying back and forth. She put on her glasses. Just a minute, let me get these on. Hang on, hang on, where? Oh. It was face down, bobbing around among the dead leaves and beer cans. The same toy elf that had been moving to a different place in the house every night after Kirk had gone to bed, as ordained in the viral Christmas tradition. It was a sad sight, this conduit of glee, adrift and faceless, a symbolic murder victim. Can we go see if he's okay? boy asked, confused by the presence of his pointy-eared friend outside, over a mile from home. When they'd last seen the elf, he'd been making a snow angel in the dusting of plain flour on the kitchen worktop. After two minutes of arguing and half-tantrums over Miranda's refusal to go rescue elf, Kirk huffed and picked a peeling piece of wood on the cafe's outdoor bench while Miranda drank her latte. Her decision was for Kirk's benefit, and she tried to explain that the Delph elf was a different one to theirs, a pretend version, but it was too late. The bad seed had been planted. At 9.10am, interior design husband and wife unit Caleb and Roxy lumbered after Haley. 
They clambered down the big stone steps towards the water, almost turning ankles and falling as their six-year-old daughter nimbly crouched and hopped from each one as quickly as she could. At the edge of the bank, the girl froze in a profound silence and brought a finger to her mouth. When they caught up with the six-year-old, Roxy dropped to one knee and wrapped her arms around her daughter, concerned about the psychological implications of such an ambush on a young mind. Caleb sighed and wondered how a ludicrously popular character had come to be here, floating in a tainted waterway. He tugged at the back of Roxy's coat and whispered in her ear that she should not tell Haley this elf was not hers. Roxy's face scrunched in horror at the suggestion. If you remove the concept of consequences, he said, what's to stop her from one day ending up like that? The inquests didn't take long to begin. Older children were robustly interrogated by parents promising severe sanctions in the event of proven guilt. Mums and dads, who were known complainants about the daily chore of repositioning the elf, were accused wantonly of carrying out a ritual sacrifice. In a few short hours, the village bristled, a hive of suspicion, and still, the body of the toy swayed to and fro in the dredge. Nobody dared be seen near it. At one stage, three ducks surrounded the toy and poked it with their beaks, which caused several young eyewitnesses to cry. Nobody seriously considered retribution on the animals, but it crossed several minds. One particularly irate grandmother told the cafe staff that if they had witnessed any suspicious looking lurkers at the opening time this morning, they needed to talk now. Since 2005, when the shellfish squatter exploded into popular culture via Carol Abersold's picture book, this 3D creation of the story's elven protagonist had become a crucial pillar of support for desperate parents in December. Children, mutating into snarling, bug-eyed agents of consumerism, had to at least pause to think about what their curly-toed supergrass on the bookshelf might report back to Santa Claus when they were asleep at night. But everything changed that morning when one washed up in the Delph. The dead toy was symbolic, a far more complex concept than it first appeared. Many parents assuring their offspring that it was fine, that this was not their elf. Theirs, they emphasised, was the only one that mattered. Some saw it as a valuable life lesson in bereavement. One hungover dad told his son, Parker, that this is what happens when Santa is crossed. By 11.30am, just hours after the grim discovery, finally convinced that this was not a, her a hoax, Constable Owen Taylor struggled into his car and drove down to Whaley Delph. Crowds of families had gathered in unusually large numbers, undeterred by the downpour which played a drumroll on his windscreen. So I'm going to cut it there, but that's the idea. It all gets a bit sinister and dark and curtains start twitching and there you have it. The Elf on the Delph, my first illustrated zine. Get it now, bentallenwriter.com. Big thank you to the supporters of the show, theaoi.com and the wonderful founding sponsor, theillustrationx.com. Check them both out. I'm going to see you very soon with a wonderful episode chatting to the brilliant Laura Hope. Have a good week, guys. See you later.